All right, if you will take your Bibles, please. Open them to the book of Hebrews, the sixth chapter. We return to this passage. Join me in standing, if you would, please. We're going to start at verse 17 this morning. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace. We pray for your mercy. We pray for your counsel to be upon us, God, with wisdom, with clarity, with truth. And we pray, God, that in the midst of this day, you would speak to each of us. Lord, let us be reminded that the things that are basic and the things that are core are still important. They are still the things that bind us to you. So God, let us aim our hearts to understand them to the fullest ability of our minds and hearts. Help us know you and give us a sense of your presence and give us, God, um, the light of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I don't know if you remember... But way back in chapter 5 at verse 10, way back in chapter 5 and verse 10, the writer of Hebrews opened a parenthetical discussion. He spent the last third of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 inside of this parenthesis, laying the foundation which he is now about to build on. He rebuked, he exhorted, he instructed, and he did this with an eye to what he wants to lead us to understand. And he's carefully prepared the ground to bring us back to this topic and to bring out the eternal priesthood of Jesus. But he closes the parenthesis and returns to the original target. And as he does so, we need to pause and consider the wisdom in this path. Because it is useless to heap new and deeper truth on a heart that is not obeying the truth that it already possesses. Amen? It's pointless for us to add new things if we're not doing the old things. This is always the case for us as we grow in Christ. As we grow in grace, we must be faithful and careful to apply what we already know. Now, the basics of the faith are not usually the most glamorous. They're not usually the most trendy. But they are the essence of God's will for us. They are His essence distilled into absolute clarity. So I want to step back for a moment And I want to consider this reality before we step out into the truth of Christ and he is revealed in Melchizedek. I want us to think about the core and the heart of what makes us children of God. The most basic and fundamental truth of the whole Christian life is found right here in Hebrews chapter 20. Chapter 6, verse 20, excuse me. Jesus, our forerunner, has gone ahead and entered the veil. He has made a way for us. And he has given us everything that we need in himself and in no other. We are who we are because of this truth. We are who we are because of Jesus Christ. All of our hope depends upon Christ and upon Christ alone. And more than fundamental, it is all-encompassing. Any attempt to remove Christ from the centrality of our faith robs it of all of its power, of all of its truth, and of all of its hope. When we try to rest our hope and our lives on anything but Christ, we will end up adrift and alone. So I want to think with you about why it matters and why it's important and why it's beautiful that Christ is the core of our faith. That Jesus and Jesus alone is what we rest in. We don't rest in the work of any other. We don't rest in the work of any saint. We don't rest in the work of any other person. We don't rest in the work of any other God. There is only one God. We don't need any other ideas or ideologies. We don't need to bring in the wisdom of the world, the multiplicity of religions that are drawing people into them. None of these things matter because we have Christ, and in Christ we have truth. 
and in him our hope is secure. Now, we need to recognize that our hope is secure in life and in death, beyond the veil, beyond the things that end us all, because Christ is already there, having gone there before us. If Jesus is the core of our hope, then his presence beyond the veil is why we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to be scared of what happens when we die because Jesus has already passed there for us and He is there waiting for us. It means that He has given to us new life which has been purchased by His death. Look at Romans chapter 6 with me. Romans chapter 6, and we're going to start at verse 4. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 4, says this. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with Him. Now, I'm going to say that again. If we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This fundamental reality of how we know that we have been accepted in God and entered into a relationship with Him, that by the death of Christ we have been purchased, we have been redeemed, we have been set free. This fundamental reality not only initiates your faith and initiates your life in Christ, but it sustains it. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the sustaining power of your life. Nothing else has the power to give you hope in the midst of the darkest days. Nothing else has the power to give you a reason to go on when all other reasons fail. We have the promise that in Christ Jesus, we live beyond the grave. And if we live beyond the grave in Christ, then there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that should be able to silence us or stop us from declaring His truth and pursuing His glory. We have to recognize this. We have to know this. This is so basic to our lives as Christians, and yet it is the one thing that it seems like most of the church in this nation has forgotten. They are far more concerned that they will be accepted by the culture and loved by the world than they will honor the Christ who bought them with his life. And the reason for that is that they don't really have any hope that they recognize beyond the present moment. There seems to be this sense of despair. Oh my goodness, if people don't like me, what will I do? Well, you will go on living your life and declare the glory of your risen Christ and you will be loved by God instead of liked by men. Because it really is an either-or sort of situation. You will either be loved by God or you will be loved by men. Take your pick. You cannot have both. We need to be willing to recognize that truth, and we need to be willing to wrestle that out in the bare implications of our lives. He has given us a new life that has its hope and its meaning and its purpose and its power in Him. Not in anything else. Not in anything that you can do or anything that you can say or any relationship in your life. It is rooted and grounded in Him. Now, What comes as a corollary of this is that death itself has been defeated by his life. Death has absolutely no power over you. God has defeated death in raising Christ from the dead. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2.
And verses 11 and 12 tell us this. In Him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. What's that mean? It means that in all truth, when God looks at you, not only does He see you as justified and forgiven, the reality of your death has been anchored in Christ, and since Christ has been raised, so also have you. God already sees you as alive in Christ. Your old man is dead. Now, he doesn't like being dead, so he tries to get up and walk around, which is why we're told to crucify the flesh daily. But, in the eyes of God, you have already been delivered from the power of death. It has no hold on you. It has no power to hurt you. It has no power to ruin your life. It has no power to harm you in any way. And the article that prescribed death as a punishment for us has been satisfied in Christ by Him dying in our place. Look with me on, as we're going to read on, verse 13, Colossians 2. And you, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now what's that tell us? The very thing that was your condemnation, the very thing that God had against you, which is the sin nature that was found in you, and the actions of sin that you willingly complied with, all of those things were held against you according to the law of God because you were not living in a way that satisfied God. You were not thinking in a way that satisfied God. You were an offense to God. And that was the reality of your life prior to Christ. But in Christ, that entire requirement and that entire structure has been taken completely out of the way. And God nailed the list of your sins to the cross when Christ was nailed there. Your sin was punished in Jesus' death. It no longer holds you. And so the guilt that comes from it and the misery that that guilt introduces, all of these things have been taken away, which is why now, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are no longer at odds with God, but we have peace with Him through Jesus. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified, past tense, having been justified by faith, we have peace, present tense enduring, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And again, that's present tense continuing. We have continuing access to God, and we continue to stand in His grace. In the Greek, that's an imperfect tense. It means that it goes on and on and on. It never stops. This grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, I want to point something out to you that you probably have heard, but you need to hear again. That word peace, when it says we have peace with God, it's not talking about warm, fuzzy feelings. It's not, you know, I've got a peaceful kind of feeling. We're not talking about an eagle song here, okay? Peace is an absence of war. And the implication in that statement is that prior to having peace with God through Christ, we were at war with Him. More terrifyingly, He was at war with us. That's the truth of Scripture. 
But the reason for God's hatred of your life and His determination to destroy you is bound up in the law, which has been taken out of the way, having been nailed to the cross of Christ. And through the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, you have been given life and peace with God. The fullness of it comes from Jesus. Not from anybody else. Nobody else has a hand in this. Not any saint, not any person, not any structure, not any church, not any religion, not any organization, not anybody or anything has any hand in your peace with God except Jesus Christ. God has satisfied His wrath by crushing Christ, by slaying Him. And he has proven that he has accepted that by raising him from the dead. Amen. We have peace with God. Now, because of this, every promise that God has ever made to us is true. Because every single promise that God has ever made to us is satisfied in the person of Christ Jesus. Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, God made a lot of promises that were pointing ahead. He made a lot of promises whereby He said, go do this and go do that, and I will look unto what is real beyond the veil. I will look to what is actually real in the heavenly places, and I will count these partial works that you are able to do as satisfying my justice. It was an ongoing, partial sort of fulfillment. But when Christ came, all of that ended. And the fullness of what God had done in Christ satisfied all of that, and every promise has been found yes. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18. God is faithful. Our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanius and Timothy. He was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all of the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So we have two aspects of God's guarantee given to us in this passage. We have the reality of the fact that all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen to the fullness of everything that is. God has not left any of His promises unsatisfied in Christ. But lest we forget that, He also has given to us the Spirit who dwells inside of our hearts as a guarantee, as a down payment, as the one who will make sure that we do not lose sight of the power of these promises. We have God's Spirit. He has given us the Spirit in the name of Christ. John 14, 26 says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. But Jesus also said that He sent the Spirit from the Father. John 15, 26 says, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. So what is it that the Spirit is coming to do, primarily? He is coming to seal us, to give us a guarantee. He is coming to speak to our hearts of what? Or more accurately, of who? Of Jesus, right? He is coming to speak to our hearts of the person of Christ. So, you can have this as a really simple litmus test. You can have this as a really simple binary question, yes or no. When somebody's beginning to go on about how this thing or this other person is to be blessed or praised or honored for something that they have done for their salvation, you can ask the simple question, are they talking about Jesus? If the answer is no, then the answer is no. If they're talking about anything but Jesus as having hope, having a reason for life, having a reason for something that they have done, you can check that right off the list and say what they're doing is not truth. End of discussion. We don't need to go into big theological arguments and pretenses and try to understand the dynamics and the nuances of how they got to where they got to where they... All we need to do is look at the question and say, are you referring to Christ... 
Or are you referring to someone else? And if you're referring to someone else, you're referring to a lie. We're done. We need to stand firm on the ground of truth which says that Jesus Christ is the reason for our hope because Jesus is the one who has entered behind the veil for us. That's what Paul is... Paul, whoever wrote Hebrews, I said that. I can't believe I said that because I don't think it was Paul. Anyway, so much of the rest of Scripture is, is Paul. That's what the writer of Hebrews has been pounding and pounding and pounding is that if you don't have the fundamentals right... None of the rest of it stands. And it all is based on Jesus. It's all based on His name and His power and His work. It is all based on Christ. The Spirit testifies of Christ. Jesus is the truth. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He testifies of Christ. He has come to help us. He's come to help us remember. He's come to help us survive. He's come to help us get through us. And in the means of everything else... Jesus Christ is the means of our access to the Father. Look, all around the world, people who would tell you they are Christians are praying to everybody but Jesus to get to God. They're praying to saints. They're praying to Mary. They're praying to everybody imaginable. They're they're talking to their priests and they're asking them to pray for them. They're asking them to to be some some sort of power in their lives, to deliver them from something. And, And in the end, we need to know what the Scripture actually says. It says there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And that is who? The man, Jesus Christ. Period. There is nobody else. And if we don't stand on that truth, we are going to find ourselves cut off from God. Look at John chapter 16. John chapter 16, starting at verse 23. Jesus said, In that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So this is the reason why when we pray, we say our prayers in Jesus' name. Now, I want to press to you that just uttering that phrase falls a bit short of the target. We need to recognize the truth that when we pray, we are talking to God through the person and through the work and the power of Christ's death and resurrection. We need to recognize the truth that we have no right to even talk to God if Christ is not doing what He is doing. So all the people in the world that are praying and crying out to God for help in their circumstances, God may or may not listen to them depending upon His pleasure and upon His will. But if they are not found in Christ, they have no guarantee and no right to expect God to hear them. Period. We come to God in prayer because of Jesus. And so when we pray and we say in Jesus' name, what we're really saying is, I believe that Jesus is my right to access the Father. I believe that Jesus is the reason why I dare to stand and pray. I believe that Jesus is the reason why I come into the throne room boldly as I'm commanded to do in Scripture. Because Christ Jesus is the intermediary who stands before the throne of grace and takes my prayer and hands it to the Father and says, this one is mine, listen to Him. Everything we do is rooted and anchored in the person of Jesus Christ. And God loves us for Jesus' sake. Do not ever think for one minute that God loves you apart from Christ. Because He loves you for the sake of Jesus. He loves you because of what Jesus did and for the fact that Jesus' blood is applied to you. Look, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, but apart from Christ, y'all just ain't that special. Amen. You're not. But in Christ... You are the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we have to be the most focused people about always bringing it back to Christ.
so that Christ is the bedrock of everything that we do. God loves you because of Jesus. He loves you because Jesus bought you. Look at John chapter 15, verse 21. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Who's he talking about? The world. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. This happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without cause. What's that tell us? Those that do not know Christ hate God. They hate you because of the stamp of God on your life. And, and it's important for us to recognize that this is natural and this is normal and this is what Jesus told us was going to be. Now the rest of the story is if we skip over to chapter 16 again, verses 27 and 28. The Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and I have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. In our love for Christ, we have evidence that God has set His love on us. Nobody can honor Christ who does not know God. In the end, it is God's power that works in us, that makes us alive, that draws us to Himself, and there is where the love is born. It's in the fact that God loves us. John tells us in 1 John, we love Him, why? Because He first loved us, right? We love Him because He first loved us. We love Him because He determined to set His love upon us, but He set His love upon us for the sake of Christ, so that the Lamb who was slain would receive the reward of His suffering. He set His love upon us because of the covenant that exists in the eternal place between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He has set His love upon us because of Jesus, and we dare not ever slide Jesus out of the center of our understanding. He is the source of our peace in the midst of all of life's chaos. John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Or John 14, 27, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your heart not be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And he tells us it's because our lives are secure and our lives are safe, being grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ and being sustained by His resurrection. Look, nobody else died for you. And nobody else was raised for you. Nobody else entered the holy place. Nobody else went behind the veil. Not any preacher. Not any priest. Not any saint. Not anybody. Nobody but Jesus is your reason for access to God. Nobody but Jesus is your reason for hope. And nobody but Jesus is the reason for your security. We live because He lives. John 14, 19 says, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. We have evidence of our justification because of His death and because of His resurrection. Uh, Romans chapter 4 Verses 23 and following. Paul writes this. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. We live our lives in the power of of Christ's resurrection. That's what gives us our ability to do anything at all. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 
Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 20, Paul writes this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. We live, we breathe, we find our power, we find our hope, we find everything that is based in the power that is given to us by the resurrection of Christ. Let me be as clear with you as I possibly can be. On your own, you do not possess the strength to draw your next breath. On your own, you do not possess the strength to do anything. And the fact that God allows you to pretend like you do is just His kindness. He doesn't continually thump you and make you not be able to breathe until you go, okay, in Jesus' name, please let me breathe. That's a mercy. That's a kindness. But of all the people on the earth, we should understand this. Of all the people on the earth, we should know this truth, and we should know it in our bones to be aware of the fact that everything we do and everything we are comes from Christ. The life that I now live in the body, I live in Christ. I live by Him. I live through Him. I live according to His working in me. That's the whole of it. That is the entirety of the gospel being poured out into us. Everything that we do, we do by the power of and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Real life is ours because Christ has been raised. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, fundamentally, there is a difference between living and existing. Amen? We live. The rest of the world exists. They, they don't live. They walk around looking like they're alive, but they are literally the walking dead. They are literally those who celebrate a culture of death. And, and this reason for, for their, their, their determination to, to continually celebrate death and can continually to drag down everything that lives is rooted in the fact that they know at some level that they are not what they pretend to be. They are not alive. They are not able to do anything. And in the end, it it weighs on them and it crushes into them. Why else would they be so determined to force us to describe them in terms that they have defined? Look, I don't care what anybody says about me. It doesn't matter. Their words are just words. It's because I'm rooted in Christ. I know who I am. I know what I am. And since I'm rooted in Christ, your opinion of me does not have the power to harm me eternally. Yeah, you can hurt my feelings and I might be upset for a little while, but that's because I'm still human. But in the end, I know what I am. And so I do not need anybody else to address me in any way or use any certain pronouns or or any other imagined nonsense to validate and verify my existence. And if you listen to the diatribes and you listen to the way that these people express these things, for you to not use their pronouns somehow makes them not exist in their mind. So tell me something. If that's the truth of it, then why is it that we don't have that problem? Is it because our lives are rooted in something real? Our lives are rooted in something sustaining? Our lives are rooted in Christ? Beloved, you can validate very simply where somebody's life and and, and worth comes from by the things that they value most. For us as Christians, it's Christ. 
It has to be Christ. It always must be Christ. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. It is nothing but Jesus that gives our lives meaning and gives our lives hope. He is our reason for existing. He is our reason for everything. And that informs and shapes our very world. Everything that we do and everything that we are is about service to our King. And it must be. It has to be about Jesus. It has to be about His glory. It has to be about His truth. It has to be about Jesus Christ being honored because in the end, what He, what he gives us is a power that is absolutely unstoppable. Why does the church fail when it, when it confronts the culture? So often. Because it uses the culture's weapons against it. Amen? We, we see it try to get down in the dirt and play with the culture and try to do things in a way that satisfies the culture. The, 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 the idea about the purpose-driven church is really nothing more than going to lost people and saying, what would I have to pretend to be in order to make you come be at church and like me? And then they build a church accordingly. It's chaos. Look, we don't go to the lost people and say, what would it take to get you to come to church? And then I'll do that thing. As soon as you do that, you have insanity like WrestleMania in church on Friday nights. You have chaos. You have insane things going on. And there's churches all around this land that are doing those insane things. It'll draw a crowd. And it might even build a group of people that would call themselves a church. But it does not build the church of Christ because Christ is not present in that nonsense. We build the church by exalting Christ. We build the church by lifting high His name. And we build the church by speaking the truth of who Jesus Christ is to a lost and dying world. And when the church does that, the church is unstoppable. Amen. What was it that caused the disciples to stand out? Was it their education? Do you remember the verse in John? I'm sorry, in Acts? Yeah. They looked at it and they said, they're uneducated men, they're, they're, they're stupid, ignorant fishermen, but they've been with Jesus. And they couldn't shut them up. They tried. Even death didn't shut them up. And we are evidence of that. Beloved, when the church gets this right, the church triumphs. And the reason why the church is in decline in America today is because the church long ago left the truth of Jesus Christ as the sufficiency for all things. It's time for us to stop that. And in everything that we do turn around and speak and declare and live and believe that Jesus Christ is our sufficiency. He has the power and He has the truth and He has the will and He has the purpose to change this land and His people are the key to doing it when we obey what He tells us. Now God can do whatever He wants. He doesn't need us. He can transform this land without us. But as a rule, God generally works through means that have been established according to natural law. As a rule, God generally works in a way that is prescribed according to the creation that He has established. And the way that He has prescribed for the kingdom to advance is that His people will declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we do that, everything changes. But we have to declare it unapologetically. We have to declare it with power. We have to declare it with authority. We have to know that whatever God does in using us is going to be effective because He has willed it to be so, but never lose sight of the fact that it is merciful to us that He actually allows us to participate with Him. That's mercy. It gives our lives meaning in the midst of all the nonsense that we live in. It gives our lives scope and purpose. It gives our lives this power that we have to absolutely have. In the end, what is the enemy's greatest weapon against you? 
you. Fear, doubt, guilt, nonsense, the things that you put into your head, the things that you listen to, the things that you process and say, oh, that might be true because I, I think about it so much and therefore I make it true by thinking about it. We all do this. Listen to the truth of God. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 1. This is how God sees you. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Look, whatever lies the enemy wants to speak to you, You have the authority of God's word to rebuke him and say, there is no condemnation, for I am in Christ. Beloved, when you don't do that, you surrender ground that you ought not to surrender. You give the enemy a stronghold in your life. You give him a way in. You give him a place that he can establish a fortress and from which he can launch attacks against you. Look, I know that you mess up. I mess up. We all mess up. We all sin. We all fall. We all need mercy. We as followers of Christ are to be always in repentance. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the fundamental reality that condemnation says God doesn't like you. That God really is unhappy with the whole situation and He's only saving you because He has to because somebody made some deal that He can't get out of. But that's not the truth of Scripture. Scripture tells us that God is the originator of this deal and that He made it because He wanted to and that in Christ He has already satisfied everything that could be held against you. So condemnation has no place. Conviction is another matter. Conviction is when the Spirit of God looks at you and says, that thing you just did, that was sin, now repent. When that happens, you need to repent. But having repented, let it go. See, the problem that so many of us face, those who think right and those who who seek to honor Christ, where the devil gets a hold of us and where the enemy of our souls comes against us is we begin to listen to his lies about how God sees us. We begin to think that somehow or another, I have disqualified myself from doing what I'm supposed to do because I sinned and therefore my sin is bigger than Jesus is really the implication, although we would never say that. But what the scripture tells us is that in Christ we have power to advance because we have already been forgiven every single fault and there is no condemnation which will ever be laid against you. You have been set free from that old way. You have been set free from the lie that says that God is displeased with you. If you're found in Christ, you are who God made you to be because of Christ. And just think that through for just a moment. And tell me this. If you are who God made you to be because of Christ...
Is there any way in the world that God would be unhappy with who you are? No. If you're in sin, repent. He doesn't change the fundamental reality of who you are. If you're in disobedience, repent. Turn away from your sin, turn unto Christ, and do what God tells you to do. Beloved, this applies to all sin. Can God save a homosexual? Absolutely. What's required? Repentance. What's required from a a person who blasphemes? Repentance. What's required of an adulterer? Repentance. What's required of a gossip? We like that one. We do that a lot. What's required of a gossip? Repentance. What's required of covetousness? Repentance. In every sin and in every situation, the answer is the same. Now, God did this because he knows that we're stupid. And if he gave us a lot of different answers that we had to keep up with, we'd we'd get them all mixed up. So he just gave us one. And he tells us it's really simple. Repent. Turn away from your sin and turn unto me. That's how you got saved when God gave you life and understanding and you saw your life in a way that you'd never seen it before. And that's how your relationship is restored when you break it. It's the same medicine for the same disease. The answer to sin is Christ. Here's the reality. If you are found in Christ, you have been adopted by God into his family. Amen. A Roman law was really peculiar in regards to adoption. When Lester does something I don't like, according to Roman law, I could disown him and be done with him forever. But having adopted Ivan, no matter what he does, I can never be rid of him. Isn't that a cool picture? God adopted you in. You're you're his. And he can never be rid of you. And he can never undo that. Not that he ever would. Not that he would ever want to. But you have been adopted into his family and made a part of the family of God. And that is an inviolable, unbreakable vow that God himself makes to you. You have been adopted into the family. But I want you to notice this, because this is really important. You have been adopted into the family in Christ Jesus. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. You've been adopted by Christ, by God through Christ, and you have been made accepted in the Beloved because everything that you have from God and in God is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. He is your hope. He is your deliverer. He is your Savior. And He has purchased us with His own blood. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 17. Peter writes this, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear knowing 
that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. In Acts chapter 20, Paul talks about, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, he tells them to take care of the flock, the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So there's another arrow in your quiver when somebody tells you that the Bible doesn't make Jesus out to be God. God purchased us with his own blood. Peter here in Peter chapter 1 tells us that Jesus purchased you, that you've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. But the upshot of it is this. The price that was paid for you was so profoundly important, so precious, so glorious, that it would never even be possible for God to get rid of you because he paid so much for you. Amen. Now, does this translate into the rest of our lives in eternity? Absolutely it does. That's why Jesus told his disciples in John 14, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Beloved, the entire structure of our lives and faith is rooted in Jesus being who he said he is and his work being accepted by God as God said it was. Amen. That's our message. That's the only message we have and it's the only message we need. It is the only truth that will change the world. No group of old guys in Switzerland is going to change the world. They're going to try, but they're not going to get it done. The only thing that will change the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it has been entrusted to us to do it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us be found faithful in this day. And that you would remind us, Lord, that the basics of the truth are as simple as this. Jesus Christ came to redeem sinners. He died for our sin. And he was raised because of our justification. God, let us proclaim the gospel faithfully. And let us be Christocentric in all that we do. Remind us always of your purpose in our lives. And remind us always that our lives reflect your glory. Let us live this out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.